This podcast brought to you by the Information Architecture Institute. Through education, advocacy, services, and social networking, the IAI has 1,400 members from 80 countries demonstrating the value of information architecture to the world at large. By the IDEA Conference. IDEA brings together the world's foremost thinkers and practitioners, sharing the big ideas that inspire, along with practical solutions for the ways people's lives and systems are converging to affect society. And by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure, Moray, and IROS for their sponsorship of Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IDEA Conference. Aaron Malone, principal at Tangible UX, and Christian Crumlish, creator at Yahoo's Design Pattern Library, present a family of social web design principles and interaction patterns to help the user experience designers and strategists grapple with the social dimensions of their products and services. The family of patterns, principles, and practices provide a framework and starting point for the conceptual modeling of any interactive digital social experience. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Go for it. Okay. So um, one of the things we wanted to just sort of start off talking about, and this is something that I think has already been brought up today, uh, yesterday, um, is the idea that designing for a social experience is trickier, more complicated than user interface design as classically considered. And, and the one way I think of that is that um, the, the traditional UI or human-computer interface was a human and a computer and an interface between them. And that's sort of very isolated and lonely. It's, it's, a, it's a solipsistic experience. I, I, uh, my analogy for that is like looking in your own medicine cabinet. Um, uh, the social experiences that we're now tending to design more and more often involve one person, one system, and at least one other person. And suddenly, you know, now you have potential chaos. Uh, you can fairly well control one person's experience of, uh, um, of a computer interface. You can't really control how human beings are going to interact with each other. All you can really do is set the stage for them, set up the boundaries. As uh, Lisa Reichelt mentioned yesterday, there's a difference between designing a framework within which people can build something or do something together. Um, that's different from designing a product, a, a, a final end result. And so one of the, the overarching things that we've noticed is that when you're doing social design, you're setting up the rules, um, but you have to let the people who come into your experience finish the design for you. And you have to be flexible enough to change the rules when you need to. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, a few steps for and things that we've seen that need to come together to make a cohesive social experience. And then we'll talk about some um, principles that overarch those social experiences and some anti-patterns, things that you don't want to do. So the first thing we're going to start with are the steps. And really, the first thing you want to think about when you're thinking about designing a social um, experience is giving a way for people to be identified. Let them have some method for being able to tell other people that they're there, for other people that they know to be able to find them. Can you find Waldo? Um, I see Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, he's up in the upper, yeah, there he is. whatever that side, the, <laughs> that's my, the my side. stage right side. Um, so, you know, that's pretty important. You want to give people a way that they can, uh, other people can find them. And you want to let them have a way to find themselves. 
And so an example um, that I want to show here is how many people are familiar with this Personas project that came out of MIT? Have you looked for yourself? You typed your own name in? And you find that you know, unless you have some very, very unique name, um, like Christian Crumlish, you're going to get information that's pulled across the Internet from a lot of other people who have the same name. And one of the things that I found interesting was in the project itself, um, the author says, uh, personas demonstrate the computer's uncanny insights and its inadvertent errors such that mischaracterizations caused by the inability to separate data from multiple owners of the same name appear. And I think that's pretty important because you know, people, while they're social, they're also um, vain and you know, want to find out how they're being perceived. And so people will look themselves up. They, will, they want to see how their friends are seeing them in a social situation. They want, to, they want to be able to claim their work. They want to be able to say, I did this. This is my stuff. And this is a perfect example that, um, where I'm looking at this, and every single one of these Aaron Malones on this page is not me. I'm not a sports star. I am not a, uh, I don't remember which ones are up here. You weren't um, sold I'm not by a, spa, a spa director. Um, I didn't sell a book with William Morris. And, and there's about eight other Aaron Malones that come through here that are kind of funny. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a senior in high school. And, and um, so that's something to, to think about if you are, one, letting people identify themselves and letting other people be able to identify them. Because then you can have um, recognition um, you can, you know, people will find their friends sometimes just by what they know that they're doing. So the next thing is that you want to give people something to do. Um, in the early days of the social web, uh, there were a lot of products that had connecting but nothing to actually do. Uh, a classic example of that would be Friendster, in which you could play the initial game of signing up and finding a friend and looking at that friend's friends and seeing if you know any of them, and we call that traversing the social graph now, but finding people, accumulating them, building up sort of a playing card set of all my friends in a pile, and then you reach what we, we call the so what problem, which is now what? Now what do I do? There's nothing to do here. I already had friends. I don't need to have them again in a virtual space and nothing to do. Um, what happened in the Friendster situation was that the, the users of the site invented a kind of fake user called a fakester, and the fake users tended to be either um, historical or mythological or fictional or, or magical people like Santa Claus or God or whatever. Um, or they'd be an interest like the New York Yankees or the Toronto Blue Jays or bowling. And then people would make friends with that kind of imaginary friend uh, collectively together. And that, for, that was like a hack that enabled group formation and affiliation. Uh, unfortunately, Friendster saw this as a violation of their terms because every member of their of their uh, service had to be a real person, and so they started eliminating the fakesters. And uh, for that and other reasons, they kind of lost their their energy and they fell apart. Um, but the, the lesson from that is that people don't just want to connect to each other for the sake of connecting. They want to connect to each other to do things, to talk about common interests, to affiliate around or rally around things that they all care about together. So if you're designing a social website or a social application, you have to go beyond just uh, representing people and giving them a way to represent or distinguish themselves and reflecting who they are back to them. That's very important. But in addition to that, you have to make sure that there's at least one object or a way to have objects in the system so that people can, can claim or talk about or connect to those objects and then recognize that they have common interests with other people. And if you don't, they'll figure out a way to do it. 
The fan pages on Facebook are a good example. But they, they're allowed, so that's a good thing. So the next thing is really around those social objects, giving people something to do. And uh, that can range anywhere from something as simple as letting people share with their friends, marking things as favorites, displaying, um, sort of collecting objects, collecting things around objects, tagging. You can start out really simple. It doesn't have to be you know, the most robust thing you've ever seen with every feature ever there. It can start out small and grow. Yeah, I mean, one thing we noticed as we were looking at this from a pattern point of view, by far the largest subset of our patterns are the activity patterns, the ones that involve doing things, people doing things with objects. And we noticed after we started clustering them and classifying them that you could kind of put them in a scale of greater and greater involvement. And you could start with things that are more or less passive or, or, or not fully social, like you know, collecting things, or saving them, favoriting them, tagging them. Um, and then you can build on that, and you, you, then you get sharing. So I, I think something's interesting. I don't just save it for myself. I send it to Aaron as well. So I go, check out this awesome video, something like that. Um, you can step that up to a level of broadcast. I think Christina made this distinction between sort of one-on-one -on -one sharing versus broadcast-style sharing, where you're writing a blog, or you're creating content, or you're sharing content to a large group or a large audience. Um, then there's the ability to give people feedback. You, um, I create an object. I put it into the system. Somebody else thinks it's not very good, they write a review of it, and then I may or may not see that. So we're not necessarily yet having a social experience, but they're commenting on my object. There's more people involved. Um, if we start to talk about, hey, I think you were wrong, or thanks for the feedback, I, I'll try to improve it next time. Now we're communicating, but that communication was actually facilitated by the object. Um, and then, you know, you, you can get to higher and higher levels of that where basically you can have collaboration, where we're not just talking about an object, we're actually making it together or we're improving it or working on it together, which is why we like this barn raising metaphor. And as you move up that curve, less and less people will be actually doing those types of activities, but in general, the quality is very high because they're very motivated. If someone's going to spend the time writing reviews or blogging or, you know, actually creating content, they're motivated, but you're going to have less of them. But the, the things that take sort of less work, you're going to have a lot of people doing those kinds of things. And that's okay. You want that mix in your system. Right. And lurkers are okay, too. Not everybody has to be representing and shouting out. It's okay to have a community where a large number of people are simply happily consuming the content, as long as there's an adequate proportion of people making stuff for you. Mm -hmm. So one of the other things that we um, are sort of distilling out as, as important is the fact that, and I think uh, Luke talked about this yesterday that, yesterday that a lot of the relationships in social spaces are based on real world relationships. And so you find that people want to take what they're doing online, they want to take it offline and then back online again. So you know, bridge, bridge to real events, enable people to set up um, meetups, to be able to talk about those things afterwards. And I like uh, to think about you know, the old Andy Hardy movies with Andy Rooney and Judy Garland from the, the late 30s where, you know, they were always like, hey, kids, let's put on a show in Dad's barn and, you know, let's get all our friends together and then let everybody know because, you know, we need to save the town or save the library or raise money or, you know, something sort of dramatic. And they'd put on the show and everybody would come and, it would, you know, happy ending. But if you enable that ability to have a spontaneous or well-planned meetup, have the event, let people come back, be able to share photos, share their, you know, what happened with other people who maybe weren't there. Now you have a system that 
easily traverses back and forth between online and offline, really uh, much more usable for this group of people. Um, so that yeah, and just let me yeah. throw in one more thing. Which is right, exactly about that. That that I think there's a, sometimes a false dichotomy when people start looking at the virtual world. That it's a completely separate thing. You have real things and you have virtual things, and. To some extent, none of these things, you know, it's never been just bits and bytes, right? I mean, we know there's there's backbone servers, there's right. physical objects behind all these things. But even putting aside that, which is really a technicality, the idea that it, it, it's been known for 20 or more years that a, a, a virtual community is incredibly strengthened if even some subset of the group can meet together face-to-face -face even just once and then take that familiarity with each other. Uh, what, do you, what does your face look like? What does your voice sound like? What kind of jokes do you tell? Bring that back to the virtual sphere where the ongoing community is happening and it enlivens it, enriches it because the next time you read a post or a comment by that person that you met, you kind of hear their voice in your head. So giving people ways to keep moving back and forth between the physical you know, world and this, this freer world of, 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 of digital space is very important. So the last step, I think this is five, um, yep. is really to give your community the opportunity to elevate the things that they find most important. And the example I like to think about is uh, the Flickr interestingness, uh, which is a combination of some Flickr moderation and Flickr algorithms, but the, the way that they, the things that they take that are important are the click-through. So people clicking on photos. Who wrote comments and when? Uh, was it right after things were posted, or is it you know many many months later? So there's a there's a time base there. Um, who marks things as favorites? How many favorites are on a photo? Um, what tags are on the photo? So this this combination of the community saying this is really interesting, this is important, along with the algorithms that Flickr has to look across billions of photos, and and elevate things to a point where you can now discover new and interesting things. So, um, you know, letting people push those things up also pushes the bad content down and, you know, spammers down and things like that. And, you know, gently moderating is, is you, you have to kind of keep an eye on it. It's not just sort of a free-for-all, total crowdsource kind of thing. So now we're going to talk about uh, sort of overarching principles that are things to think about across uh, your whatever you're building, no matter what you know combination of things that you put together. Well, and don't go ahead. So when we started writing our the book, we knew that we were going to you know capture and document this giant catalog of patterns, uh, many of which already you know had been identified. It's not like we wrote them all or invented them all. We basically gathered them together and filled in the gaps where we found them. But we also knew that that would get you down in the weeds pretty easily and that and on some level you have to think about some high level, some high order principles that inform all your decisions because even when you're taking a pattern out of a pattern library or out of a book and you're trying to apply it to a project, you're never supposed to just use it like a cookie cutter thing without thinking about it. You're supposed to look at the context. Is this the appropriate context for this pattern? Will it work here? Will it have consequences that are negative that I have to then deal with or that might make me question whether this is the right pattern now? And these principles, um, uh, they're the kind of thing that you can always keep in the back of your mind so that as you're making decisions about whether to build a feature or not or how to implement something, you can think through, um, you know, something, this, these principles will help guide those decisions. So the and first one is more, called, sorry, we, we have more in the book than just these five. But these are the best ones. <laughs> so um, the first principle is pave the cow paths. 
Um, I stole this photo from Peter Merholtz's blog, and I give him zero credit. Um, and, uh, but what you're supposed to see here is, I believe this is UC Berkeley, and what you see is that, that path where the students are taking to cut the corner, right? And for a long time, um, what the groundskeepers would do is they would build like concrete barriers or little fences or, or something around the places where people were cutting, the, cutting out of the, the paved path and cutting across the lawn. Um, but what you'll find in a lot of plans, including on campuses, is that they, they don't put all the, all the paths in at first. Um, they wait to see where do people cut corners, where do people tend to go straight from this building to that, and then ultimately they'll pave that path. So the, the, the analogy in social software is to not be so heavy-handed with trying to rigidly define what your users should do in the space. Um, it's very common to, to build software, to have people start using it and say, they're using it wrong. You know, the user is stupid. They didn't understand what to do. Uh, we gave them a box for tagging things, then they typed searches into the box. Or they typed, I'm confused, help me, or something <laughs> like that. Um, that's all uh, information for you about what people expected, what they were trying to do, what they hoped to do. And more often than not, instead of punishing them or, or, or forcing them to do the thing you want them to do, um, you can get a lot further by facilitating the thing that they're trying to do and building on it. Um, in Twitter, they, 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 the, the users invented the at syntax for replying to people, so Twitter supported it. They made it so that that was something you could click on to go to the person's page. Um, users invented retweet, and uh, recently uh, Twitter supports retweet now as, as a feature built into the architecture. In the case of uh, Dogster, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dogster, it's a social network for dogs. Um, the people who invented Dogster, and they have Catster too, so you know they're even-handed, um, they started off with uh, a product that was more or less yet another photo-sharing site. Back in the early days before, it wasn't clear who the winners were going to be in the photo-sharing game. And they just happened to notice that a lot of their early users were posting pictures of their pets. And they went, ah, people like to post pictures of pets. So they just kind of read, they, they didn't just change the design of their software, they changed the design of their business. And they built a business around fanatical pet owners who really want to like represent themselves through their pets and make relationships through their pets and write diaries in the voice of their pets, believe it or not. Um, and you know, as silly as that may sound, they're, they're, they make money. They're successful. My um, dog has a profile. Yeah, there you go. So, so I, mean, I, I set up my cat at once, and immediately, like three other cats wanted to be friends with Freddy. So, <laughs> it's, it's an active uh, site. Okay. The next principle is talk like a person. Um, and I, I like to say that that this is something that's not really new to social software. Um, I don't think it's ever been all that good to write code. I mean, to, to write a copy in websites or in applications that is robotic or corporate, or impersonal. Or Just engineering speak. Engineering speak. Error code 305, you know, something like that. Um, you know, we like, we like to, to use a conversational voice. We recommend that. I mean, remember, there's no point in hiding the fact that human beings built the website, that human beings wrote the copy, that people, you know, that, that are going to answer your, your customer service call. It's going to be a human being on the other end of the line, I hope, at least for now. And, um, uh, you know, if you set the tone by writing friendly copy, Flickr is great at this, Doppler is good at it, um, uh, get satisfaction's good at it. A lot of people are terrible at it. And they just lapse into legalese and corporate talk and defensive language and it's not our fault and stuff like that. Um, you know, you, you want the voice of your site or of your application to be a human voice, a humane voice. You want to establish that we're polite here, we're, we're friendly, we, we, we speak in a normal cadence and then people will pick up on that and they'll, they'll also relate to each other in a similar sort of human way. Um, a third principle is be open, or I like to call it play well with others. Uh, and uh, you know, I, w I work for the Yahoo Open Strategy team, so I'm, I'm a little bit biased. 
Um, things don't always have to be open. They can be tightly integrated like the Apple ecosystem, or they can be completely open and disruptive, uh, like, like the Rebel Alliance fighting the Death Star. Um, the, the, the fundamental ways to be open that I see are you can, you can use open source technologies whenever possible. Uh, you can make it so that your data can be taken out of your site and put in place elsewhere. Um, you can enable it so that your site can bring data in from, from external sources and mash it up and add more value to it. Um, and you can be interoperable and let your uh, and support data portability and let your users take their data out of the system. Now we know there's going to be some uh, open source authority who's going to tell us, well, Lego is a proprietary model and they sue people if they try to copy them or whatever. So it's maybe not the ultimate metaphor, but the idea is that with a simple standard, let's just call the, the Lego a standard, people have been able to kind of build almost anything you can imagine on top of that. Um, one other aspect of being open and playing well with others is not trying to rebuild the whole ecosystem inside your application. You know, do you need an identity system or is there an identity system already in place that you can just tap into? You know, do you need a reputation model or is there, well, there's not really any great third party reputation models yet, but there should be. Um, you know, uh, can, can you let people get their data in and out of your system through Twitter or Facebook? Or do they have to come into your site and sign up and create something there? Whenever possible, if you can leverage what people are already doing and build on systems that are already out there, I think you're, you're, you're helping to build the whole web rather than just trying to build a ship in the bottle. And uh, our fourth principle is learn from games. Um, I think that if you're in the social space, if you're interested in social design, you've probably noticed that there is a constant dialogue going on between game designers and social designers. We both have reputation systems with points in them sometimes. We both, have, we both want our users to level up and get more and more involved and more engaged, maybe start help building the thing ultimately. Collecting is pretty, right. you know, pretty Collecting uh, is something that, everywhere. that's Displaying. very popular in games. Badges and symbols of what you've achieved. Um, playfulness just in general, you know, the idea that, that it's fun. Um, there was this company called Ludicorp in, in, in Vancouver, and they, their first product was called Game Never Ending. Um, and it was a sort of an avatar-based, uh, you know, almost like a mud, except it was graphic. It, it, it was a, a shared space where you went in and you were sort of on a quest, um, but you also met the other people playing the game, and it had a chat window. Um, the second product that Ludicorp made was called Flickr. Um, and then Flickr was acquired by Yahoo, of course, and the rest is history. But in my mind, Flickr is also a game. It was built by people, ludic means game, you know, playful. Um, this is a company oriented around making things like games. And I think a lot of the early success of Flickr, a lot of the success now is both that there's a playful aspect to, to discovering things in the interface and surprise and delight and connecting with other people. Um, and also that there's this generative platform in which people can make up their own games. They can, they can create groups and they can give each other awards and they can say, I'm, I'm the administrator of a group of people who, you know, pictures of people with funny hats. Would you like to join? So they, they invent their own games that they play inside the Flickr ecosystem. Um, so I think wherever possible, I'm, I'm trying to crib all my ideas from, from gameplay because I think, would you rather be in a kind of a productivity spreadsheet making environment or a game playing environment? I think most people would rather play games even if they're at work. And if anyone is interested in what this photo is, this is, I think, the anniversary of Candyland. They took Lombard Street in San Francisco and turned it into a Candyland board. Pretty fun. People could play. Yeah. The fifth principle is respect the ethical dimension. And what we mean by that is that there, there is always an ethical component to what you're doing when you're designing social software. Because you're designing a place for people. And people are going to behave, they're going to enter into that space and they're going to interact with each other and they're going to 
have relationships and they're going to possibly harm each other or betray each other or do all kinds of things. And in fact, you're making certain commitments as well. If you say, give me your private information, then you're making a commitment either explicitly or implicitly to keep that information private. Um, you know, if, if, if you write a little software for managing you know, information or something and it leaks out, that may not be a problem. But if you design a social application that takes people's private lives and then you accidentally publish an RSS feed with everybody's data, then you've betrayed all your users and the stakes are much higher. I think the other aspect that I want to bring up with ethics is that there are often ethical trade-offs. I'm not really saying that, that everybody needs to be a Simon Pure Paladin and never bend any ethical rules. What I'm saying really is that you need to be conscious of what you're doing and think about it and think about what the consequences of it are. Um, growing your site, getting your app to go viral is often a pretty uh, tricky balancing act between am I being spammy? Am I tricking my users into inviting each other? into this, or am I giving them a good reason to do it? Um, how, what, 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 what ethical rules am I willing to bend to get through the cold start, to get people into my system and start using it? And you may or may not think that that, that, that choice is willing to, you know, that, that that's an, a choice worth making. Um, I'm not really judging anybody's decision. What I'm really saying is that you shouldn't make these decisions blindly. You should be conscious that there are ethical implications to your design decisions, and you should factor that in when you, when you make your choices. So in the process of uh, writing the book and doing a lot of the research, we've uh, uncovered a handful of what we're calling anti-patterns. And in many cases, these are behaviors that, and sometimes they're necessary to get a product out, but they often have unintended negative consequences. And um, so we wanted to share some of those. So the first um, anti-pattern is, is uh, cargo cult. And cargo cult is a phenomenon that came out of um, World War II um, when, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and the U.S. decided to enter the war and started to set up bases on the islands in the South Pacific. Um, there were a lot of native islanders who saw that, you know, we, they built runways, they uh, were flying in... Uh, uh, their airplanes because they had to go on missions, they had uh, people training, and, and as part of that, they were bringing in food, they were bringing in supplies, and you know everything you need to support an army. Wonderful cargo, which cargo. became the word for these magical so, things that came out of the sky. When the war was over, you know the U.S. pulled out and they left. And um, the people who were still on the island were like, wow, where'd all the stuff go? And um, so I want to read you what Wikipedia calls oh, the... Pardon? Oh, yeah. So here's. Um, so this was the, p the kind of plane they would build to try to. So a cargo cult is any group of people who imitate the superficial exterior of a process or system without having any understanding of the underlying substance. And the error of logic made by these islanders consisted of mistaking a necessary condition, like building control towers, airships, marching, um, you know, having. Uh, uh, you know, doing runways and, and doing, there, like, you know, doing formation and things like that and patrols. Um, you know, they thought that was what was necessary for cargo to come in. And so they built these things out of bamboo, um, you know, in, their, in, in the materials that they had at hand. And they thought that was, you know, that that was sufficient, that that was a sufficient condition for cargo to come in. And so the important lesson here is that you can't just steal or copy um, you know, an interface. You see this a lot in some of the, the phones that are coming out that are copying. It looks like, oh, well, they're just like the iPhone. 
and maybe they don't necessarily work quite the same because the people doing that are not necessarily understanding all the decisions around the framework and the system and the technology underlying um, that interface. And one cargo cult that I think everybody's seen in the last four or five years is that after Flickr's success, a lot of people seem to think that you know Web 2.0 success comes if you leave a vowel out of the end of your, your product's name. And you see all these things that end in R as if yeah. that was the, the secret sauce that made Flickr so great. So you can steal, but you just need to understand what you're stealing and why. And you know, what the ramifications are. So the next one is don't break email. And uh, this comes out of the fact, you know, lots of new products are coming out, taking advantage of uh, systems and infrastructures that already exist. And we're, we've been seeing that in things like, uh, you know, you sign up for Twitter, you put in your email address, someone wants to direct message you, it might come to your email account, but you can't reply. You're like, crap, now I have to go, you know, go to Twitter or do this. Um, a lot of other companies have done that. When Basecamp first started, uh, when someone would uh, put in a message or a comment or something, it would email, you get a notification that there's a new comment or a new, you know, a new file or something, and you can't reply to that. Uh, they've since fixed it, and now if you reply above the line, it, it, you can do this action in your email, your reply goes back into the thread in the right place without all the other crap, and someone who's just using the website can see the continued conversation. And so it, they've, they've, they adjusted their system to take advantage of the infrastructure that they were using and the behaviors that people already knew how to do and were already expecting to work. Yeah, Dave Weiner used to call this also don't break users. In other words, they, users already have habits, and if you give them the implication that they can behave a certain way, and then you make that, that, that feature not work that way anymore. You've, basically, you've broken that. He also calls it Don't Break Dave. That, that's his <laughs> other name for it. So the next one is the password anti-pattern. And this one's a little controversial because we see it a lot. You know, everybody does it. Um, we see... Explain what it is. I'm going to. <laughs> so... Often when people are creating new uh, social networks, you know, there's nobody there. There's not, there's, uh, you come in and you need to bring your network in in order for there to be something to happen because you need other people to play off of. And it's a big pain to have to go find people. So there's interface that's been built where you can go in and put in your name and password to go troll your address book, say, on Gmail or, or Yahoo or, you know, whatever, and find people who may already be in the system to find them and you know, be offered as connections or to email and invite them. But what that does is, you know, I as a user, I'm putting in my name and password on this other site for my Gmail or my Yahoo, which I may use, or my, you know, some other mail site. And I don't know what this, these people are going to do with it. And these people may say, oh, you know, we, we won't save your password. We, you know, we're trustworthy. We won't spam all your friends. Or we're not fishers, really. You know, we're not going to take all your data and do bad things with it. Um, we're, we're not going to try that password at every other site. Exactly. In, in case you use it everywhere. So what's happened in order to shortcut the system to to quickly build a network into a social system, uh, we've trained users to give away their names and passwords for all their other systems. 
and that's why this is the password anti-pattern. It is a shortcut. It is a fast way to get things built, but there are alternatives being built with things like OAuth and uh, OpenID. And, and, and Facebook Connect is another example that, you know, you are authenticating through the appropriate system by going to that third-party site, authenticating, and then they're give, you're giving permission for that data to be shared without giving your passwords away. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of a tragedy of the commons thing where you, you're, you're, you might be solving your problem right now, and any pattern solves a problem. It just it, it seems like a good idea at the time. Um, but you're harming the whole ecosystem. It's like sort of taking antibiotics every time you get the sniffles. Right. You, you, you may feel better, but you've actually hurt the whole system as a whole. So we have a, a little video. It's a little dark. The bridge of death. Oh, right. Look, there's the old man from scene 24. He's doing here. He is the keeper of the bridge of death. He asks each traveler five questions. Three questions. Three questions. He who answers the five questions. Three questions. Three questions may cross in safety. What if you get a question wrong? Then you are cast into the gorge of eternal peril. Oh, what go? Who's going to answer the questions? Sir Robin. Yes? Brave Sir Robin, you go. Hey, I've got a great idea. Why doesn't Lancelot go? Yes, let me go, Marie. I will take it single-handed. I shall make a feint to the North East. No, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. Just answer the five questions. Three questions. Three questions as best you can. And we shall watch and pray. I understand, Marie. Good luck, brave Sir Lancelot. God be with you. Stop! Who would cross the bridge of death must answer me these questions, Lee. Uh, the other side, he see. Ask me the questions, bridge fever. I'm not afraid. What is your name? My name is Sir Lancelot of Camelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? Blue. What is your mother's maiden name? Uh, What's your password? Yeah. If, they just, okay. if they implemented OAuth, then you wouldn't yeah. have needed that at all. So the, the next anti-pattern, uh, we're calling the ex-boyfriend bug. The original name was the ex-girlfriend bug. But I'm um, PC, so I switched so, it around. Um, this comes from... Dodgeball. Comes from Dodgeball, which is uh, was a social... Uh, mobile uh, application. Are did any of you familiar with that? I think it primarily was in New York City. Uh, Foursquare, if you're familiar with that, is sort of uh, sort of the next kind of thing. Or Looped is very similar. And when they first launched, they had um, a relationship system where you had all your friends, and they were just sort of in one bu big bucket. There was no differentiation. Um, or any kind of way to categorize the people that you were friends with in any meaningful, in any way at all. And so what was happening, because primarily uh, fairly young people, not, not my age, um, were using this, and they were using the tool to sort of spontaneously announce, oh, hey, we're going to be at you know, Joe's Bar, you know, everybody come, and let's have drinks, or let's go out to dinner, or whatever. And these people would go out, they, you know, start to hook up, and you have, you know, people starting to date each other, and, you know, very active social system. And then people would start to break up, except they're still in their bucket of friends, and every time, you know, a new meetup would happen, the person that you used to date would find out where you are, and maybe you don't want them stalking you. Um, so it was 
called out as a bug because this started to become a problem. And so what they did is they implemented the ability for people to cluster their friends and set permissions against those clusters. So now you can say, you know, hey, my cool hip friends can, uh, you know, see this, but my other friends can't. And you didn't, you didn't block them or unfriend them. So it wasn't like, you know, I, I don't like you anymore. Go away. I don't want you to know anything. It was just they wouldn't see some of the things that you might send out, and then they would never know that, you know, maybe you were down the street uh, yeah, and having part, drinks. And part of the problem is that you can do math on a, on a social graph, and you can derive relationships, but you can't see, I think Luke talked about this the other day, you, you can't see all the nuances of that. So just because it looks in your mathematical model like these two people ought to be friends, you might, you know, it, it, there might be a reason why, even though they have 35 friends in common, they have not made a connection on your site. And you know, trying to get them together may be a mistake. Yeah, like they're your ex-boyfriend. <laughs> so the fifth um, anti-pattern that we like to talk about is uh, Potemkin Village. And um, if, you, uh, if you've never heard of this term, it refers to um, Russia in the days of the Tsarina uh, Yekaterina. Um, I believe her, her, um, her minister, her prime minister, I guess, or I'm not sure what his title was, um, Potemkin, uh, told her that there was this wonderful colonizing effort going on down to the Crimea and that there was a thriving community of villages filled with happy peasants. Um, and she wanted to take a tour, uh, sort of a carriage tour, down to the Black Sea and see this successful experiment that was going on. But the fact was that there was no successful set of villages along these roads. So they built fake villages, um, you know, every, every couple miles, every half a day's journey. And they had basically one set of peasants that they would kind of run ahead of the, the Tsar, the Tsarina's the entourage, and have them stand there like Colonial Williamsburg, pretending to be living in the town. And then she'd say, oh, that's wonderful, and they'd roll out of town and they'd take them sort of by a different route and get them to the next town ahead of time. And the, the, what we mean by using that metaphor is that when you're setting up a, a group system, a community system, a discussion system, a, a BBS, anything like that, there's this great temptation in the early days to build it out in a very rich and complex way. Say, oh, people are going to want to talk about sports, they're going to want to talk about weather, they're going to want to talk about the site itself, they're going to want to, uh, you know, uh, do romance, and, you know, whatever it is, you're, you're, you're going to have a taxonomy in your mind of the types of conversations that you hope are going to start happening on your site. And it's tempting to create this sort of honeycomb of cells that, that talk about, you know, that, that, that set up here, come here if you want to talk about sports, come here if you want to talk about fashion. But the problem is that in the early days of a site, when you don't have very many members, um, if, if people are not going to be able to go in and fill up all those conversations. They're not going to be motivated to. They're not going to find anybody else in there. And in fact, if you have three, five, ten, a hundred people in your, in your system, and they have distributed themselves across the 35 different discussion groups that you've set up, they're still not going to find each other. Everywhere they go, it's going to be sort of an empty Potemkin village where nobody else is there, uh, with the appearance until you click through of something interesting. Um, the, the, the solution to that, the, the, the tried and true method that's worked all the way back to the days of BBSs and Usenet and things like that, is that you set up just one group, maybe a second one for complaining about bugs or something like that, but basically one group, and you put everybody in it. So they're concentrated together, they rub up against each other, they make friction, they, they find each other, they have conversations, they have relationships, and then your users will tell you when they wish that there was some separation. You know, they'll say, in, in the, the old story from Usenet was that um, there was just one big music group, uh, well, it wasn't, it wasn't rec.music back then. It was net.music yeah. back then. Um, so you had the classical lovers, and you had the, the thrash metal heads, and you had the punks, and you had the hippies, like all in one place discussing music. And you had a lot of deadheads um, on, the, on Usenet in the early days. We are everywhere. And um, the thing is, 
Uh, Deadheads wanted to talk about Grateful Dead. They, they used to have a, ma- a mailing list called Jerry's Breakfast. It was where they you know, talk about what Jerry probably had for breakfast every day. And they attached that to Usenet. And they were kind of in there talking about that stuff. And they wanted their own area. Um, and the, the powers that be in Usenet said, it's way too soon to make a Grateful Dead topic. We just have music. We need classical folk you know, and, and they wanted sub major categories and subcategories, and maybe someday we can make you a special little area, you gentle hippies. And um, so, so the, the the deadheads hanging out in, in, in net.music basically filibustered. They just started talking about Grateful Dead all day long, all the time, until the classical people and the folk people and the, everybody else said, give them their own group, let them go do that. It's it, okay it was, if it's four it, levels it, down in the it, taxonomy. Right, it forked <laughs> off, it calved off. Rec music, GDAT, I believe, still exists to this day. And, um, you know, but that model was replicated over and over again. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 Idea Conference, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the fourth annual Idea Conference, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that would be of greatest value to you, our listeners.